This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter One The Dance. One. Edward Henry Machin first saw the smoke on the 27th of May, 1867, in Broom Street, Bursley, the most ancient of the five towns. Broom Street runs down from St. Luke's Square straight into the Shropshire Union Canal, and consists partly of buildings known as pot-banks, until they come to be sold by auction, when auctioneers describe them as extensive earthenware manufactories, and partly of cottages whose highest rent is four and six a week. In such surroundings was an extraordinary man born. He was the only anxiety of a widowed mother, who gained her livelihood and his by making up ladies' own materials in ladies' own houses. Mrs. Machin, however, had a speciality apart from her vocation. She could wash flannel with less shrinking than any other woman in the district and she could wash fine lace without ruining it. Thus, often she came to sew, and remained to wash. A somewhat gloomy woman, thin, with a tongue. But I liked her. She saved a certain amount of time every day by addressing her son as Denry, instead of Edward Henry. Not intellectual, not industrious, Denry would have maintained the average dignity of labour on a pot-bank, had he not, at the age of twelve, won a scholarship from the board school to the endowed school. He owed his triumph to audacity rather than learning, and to chance rather than design. On the second day of the examination, he happened to arrive in the examination room ten minutes too soon for the afternoon sitting. He wandered about the place, exercising his curiosity, and reached the master's desk. On the desk was a tabulated form, with names of candidates, and the number of marks achieved by each, in each subject of the previous day. He had done badly in geography, and saw seven marks against his name, in the geographical column, out of a possible thirty. The figures had been written in pencil. The pencil lay on the desk. He picked it up, glanced at the door, and at the rows of empty desks, and wrote a neat two in front of the seven. Then he strolled innocently forth, and came back late. His trick ought to have been found out. The odds were against him, but it was not found out. Of course it was dishonest, yes, but I will not agree that Denry was uncommonly vicious. Every schoolboy is dishonest by the adult standard. If I knew an honest schoolboy— I would begin to count my silver spoons. All is fair between schoolboys and schoolmasters. This dazzling feat seemed to influence not only Denry's career, but also his character. He gradually came to believe that he had won the scholarship by genuine merit, and that he was a remarkable boy, and destined to great ends. His new companions, whose mothers employed Denry's mother, also believed that he was a remarkable boy, 
but they did not forget, in their gentlemanly way, to call him Washerwoman. Happily, Denry didn't mind. He had a thick skin, and fair hair, and bright eyes, and broad shoulders, and the jolly gaiety of his disposition developed daily. He did not shine at the school. He failed to fulfil the rosy promise of the scholarship. But he was not stupider than the majority, and his opinion of himself, having once risen, remained at set fair. It was inconceivable that he should work in clay with his hands. 2. When he was sixteen, his mother, by operations on a yard and a half of Brussel Point lace, put Mrs. Emery under an obligation. Mrs. Emery was the sister of Mr. Duncalf. Mr. Duncalf was town clerk of Bursley, and a solicitor. It is well known that all bureaucracies are honeycombed with intrigue. Denry Machin left school to be a clerk to Mr. Duncalf, on the condition that within a year he should be able to write shorthand at a rate of a hundred and fifty words a minute. In those days mediocre and incorrect shorthand was not a drug on the market. He complied, more or less, and decidedly less than more, with the condition, and for several years he really thought that he had nothing further to hope for. Then he met the Countess. The Countess of Chell was born of poor but picturesque parents and she could put her finger on her great-grandfather's grandfather. Her mother gained her livelihood and her daughters by allowing herself to be seen a great deal with humbler but richer people's daughters. The countess was brought up to matrimony. She was aimed and timed to hit a given mark at a given moment. She succeeded. She married the Earl of Chell. She also married about twenty thousand acres in England, about a fifth of Scotland, a house in Piccadilly, seven country seats, including Snaid, a steam-yacht, and five hundred thousand pounds' worth of shares in the Midland Railway. She was young and pretty. She had travelled in China, and written a book about China. She sang at charity concerts, and acted in private theatricals. She sketched from nature. She was one of the great hostesses of London." and she had not the slightest tendency to stoutness. All this did not satisfy her. She was ambitious. She wanted to be taken seriously. She wanted to enter into the life of the people. She saw in the quarter of a million souls that constitute the five towns a unique means to her end, an unrivalled toy. And she determined to be identified with all that was most serious in the social progress of the five towns. Hence some fifteen thousand pounds were spent in refurbishing Snade Hall, which lies on the edge of the five towns, and the Earl and Countess passed four months of the year there. Hence the Earl, a mild retiring man, when invited by the town council to be the ornamental mayor of Bursley, accepted the invitation. Hence the mayor and mayoress gave an immense afternoon reception to practically the entire role of burgesses. And hence, a little later, the mayoress let it be known that she meant to give a municipal ball. The news of the ball thrilled Bursley more than anything had thrilled Bursley since the signing of the Magna Carta. Nevertheless, balls had been offered by previous mayoresses. One can only suppose that in Bursley there remains a peculiar respect for land, railway stock, steam-yachts, and great-grandfather's grandfather. 
Now, everybody of account had been asked to the reception. But everybody could not be asked to the ball, because not more than two hundred people could dance in the town hall. There were nearly thirty-five thousand inhabitants of Bursley, of whom quite two thousand counted, even though they did not dance. Three. Three weeks and three days before the ball, Denry Machin was seated one morning alone in Mr. Duncalf's private offices in Duck Square, where he carried on his practice as a solicitor, when in stepped a tall and pretty young woman, dressed very smartly, but soberly in dark green. On the desk in front of Denry were several wide sheets of abstract paper, concealed by a copy of that morning's Athletic News. Before Denry could even think of reversing the positions of the abstract paper and the athletic news, the young woman said, "'Good morning,' in a very friendly style. She had a shrill voice and an efficient smile. "'Good morning, madam,' said Denry. "'Mr. Duncalf in?' asked the young woman, brightly. "'Why should Denry have slipped off his stool? It's utterly against etiquette.' for solicitous clerks to slip off their stools while answering inquiries. "'No, madam, he's across at the town hall,' said Denry. The young lady shook her head playfully, with a faint smile. "'I've just been there,' she said. "'They said he was here. "'I dare say I could find him, madam, if you would—' She now smiled broadly. "'Conservative club, I suppose,' she said, with an air deliciously confidential. He, too, smiled. "'Oh, no,' she said, after a little pause. "'Just tell him I've called.' "'Certainly, madam. Nothing I can do?' She was already turning away, but she turned back and scrutinised his face, as Denry thought, roguishly. "'You might just give him this list,' she said, taking a paper from her satchel and spreading it. She had come to the desk. Their elbows touched.' He isn't to take any notice of the crossings out in red ink, you understand? Of course I'm relying on him for the other lists, and I expect all the invitations to be out on Wednesday. Good morning. She was gone. He sprang to the grimy window. Outside in the snow were a broom, twin horses, twin men in yellow, and a little crowd of youngsters and oldsters. She flashed across the footpath and vanished. The door of the carriage banged. One of the twins in yellow leapt up to his brother, and the whole affair dashed dangerously away. The face of the leaping twin was familiar to Denry. The man had, indeed, once inhabited Broom Street, being known to the street as Jock, and his mother had for long years been a friend of Mrs. Machin's. It was the first time Denry had seen the Countess, save at a distance. Assuredly she was finer even than her photographs entirely different from what one would have expected, so easy to talk to. Yet, what had he said to her? Nothing, and everything. He nodded his head, and murmured, "'No mistake about that lot,' meaning, presumably, that all that one had read about the brilliance of the aristocracy was true, and more than true. "'She's the finest woman that ever came into this town,' he murmured. The truth was that she surpassed his dreams of womanhood. At two o'clock she had been a name to him. At five minutes past two he was in love with her. He felt profoundly thankful that, for a church tea-meeting that evening, he happened to be wearing his best clothes. 
It was while looking at her list of invitations to the ball that he first conceived the fantastic scheme of attending the ball himself. Mr. Duncalf was fussily and deferentially managing the machinery of the ball for the Countess. He had prepared a little list of his own of people who ought to be invited. Several aldermen had been requested to do the same. There were thus about half a dozen lists to be combined into one. Denry did the combining. Nothing was easier than to insert the name of E. H. Machin inconspicuously towards the centre of the list. Nothing was easier than to lose the original lists inadvertently, so that if a question arose as to any particular name, the responsibility for it could not be ascertained without inquiries too delicate to be made. On Wednesday, Denry received a lovely Bristol board, stating in copperplate that the Countess desired the pleasure of his company at the ball, and on Thursday his name was ticked off as one who had accepted. 4. He had never been to a dance, he had no dress suit, and no notion of dancing. He was a strange, inconsequent mixture of courage and timidity. You and I are consistent in character. We are either one thing or the other. But Denry Machin had no consistency. For three days he hesitated, and then, secretly trembling, he slipped into Shillitoe's, the young tailor who had recently set up, and who was gathering together the jeunesse dorée of the town. "'I want a dress suit,' he said. Shillitoe, who knew that Denry only earned eighteen shillings a week, replied with only superficial politeness that a dress-suit was out of the question. He had already taken more orders than he could execute without killing himself. The whole town had uprisen as one man and demanded a dress-suit. "'So you're going to the ball, are you?' said Shillitoe, trying to condescend, but in fact slightly impressed. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Are you?' Shillitoe started, and then shook his head. "'No time for balls,' said he. "'I can get you an invitation, if you like,' said Denry, glancing at the door, precisely as he had glanced at the door before adding two to seven. "'Oh!' Shillitoe cocked his ears. He was not a native of the town, and had no alderman to protect his legitimate interests. To cut a shameful story short, in a week Denry was being tried on. Shillitoe allowed him two years' credit. The prospect of the ball gave an immense impetus to the study of the art of dancing in Bursley, and so put quite a nice sum of money into the pockets of Miss Earp, a young mistress in that art. She was the daughter of a furniture dealer with a passion for the bankruptcy court. Miss Earp's evening classes were attended by Denry but none of his money went into her pocket. She was compensated by an expression of the Countess's desire for the pleasure of her company at the ball. The Countess had aroused Denry's interest in women as a sex. Ruth Earp quickened the interest. She was plain, but she was only twenty-four, and very graceful on her feet. Denry had one or two strictly private lessons from her in reversing— she said to him one evening, when he was practising reversing, and they were entwined in the attitude prescribed by the latest fashion, "'Never mind me. Think about yourself. It's the same in dancing as it is in life. The woman's duty is to adapt herself to the man.' 
He did think about himself. He was thinking about himself in the middle of the night, and about her, too. There had been something in her tone, her eye. At the final lesson he inquired if she would give him a first waltz at the ball. She paused, and then said, Yes. 5. On the evening of the ball, Denry spent at least two hours in the operation which was necessary before he could give the Countess the pleasure of his company. This operation took place in his minute bedroom at the back of the cottage in Broom Street, and it was of a complex nature. Three weeks ago he had innocently thought that you had only to order a dress suit, and there you were. He now knew that a dress suit is merely the beginning of anxiety. Shirt, collar, tie, studs, cufflinks, gloves, handkerchief. He was very glad to learn authoritatively from Shillitoe that handkerchiefs were no longer worn in the waistcoat opening, and that men who so wore them were barbarians, and the truth was not in them. Thus an everyday handkerchief would do. Boots. Boots were the rock on which he had struck. Shillitoe, in addition to being a tailor, was a hosier, but by some flaw in the scheme of the universe, hosiers do not sell boots. Except boots, Denry could get all he needed on credit. Boots he could not get on credit, and he could not pay cash for them. Eventually he decided that his church boots must be dazzled up to the level of this great secular occasion. The pity was that he forgot, not that he was of a forgetful disposition in great matters, he was simply over-excited. He forgot to dazzle them up, until after he had fairly put his collar on, and his necktie in a bow. It was imprudent to touch blacking in a dress-shirt, so Denry had to undo the past and begin again. This hurried him. He was not afraid of being late for the first waltz with Miss Ruth Earp, but he was afraid of not being out of the house before his mother returned. Mrs. Machin had been making up a lady's own materials all day, naturally, the day being what it was. If she had had twelve hands instead of two, she might have made up the own materials of half a dozen ladies instead of one, and earned twenty-four shillings instead of four. Denry did not want his mother to see him ere he departed. He had lavished an enormous amount of brains and energy to the end of displaying himself in this refined and novel attire to the gaze of two hundred persons, and yet his secret wish was to deprive his mother of the beautiful spectacle. However, she slipped in, with her bag and her seamy fingers, and her rather sardonic expression, at the very moment when Denry was putting on his overcoat in the kitchen, there being insufficient room in the passage— he did what he could to hide his shirt-front, though she knew all about it, and failed. "'Bless us!' she exclaimed briefly, going to the fire to warm her hands. A harmless remark, but her tone seemed to strip bare the vanity of human greatness. "'I'm in a hurry,' said Denry, importantly, as if he was going forth to sign a treaty involving the welfare of nations.' "'Well,' said she, "'happen you are, Denry, but the kitchen-table's no place for boot-brushes.' He had one piece of luck. It froze. Therefore, no anxiety about the condition of boots. 6. The Countess was late. Some trouble with the horse. Happily the Earl had been in Bursley all day, 
and had dressed at the Conservative Club, and his lordship had ordered that the programme of dances should be begun. Denry learnt this as soon as he emerged, effulgent from the gentleman's cloak-room, into the broad, red-carpeted corridor which runs from end to end of the ground floor of the town hall. Many important townspeople were chatting in the corridor. The innumerable Swetnam family, the Stanways, the great Etches, the Fernses, Mrs. Clayton Vernon, the Suttons, including Beatrice Sutton. Of course, everyone knew him for Duncast's shorthand clerk and the son of the flannel washer, but universal white kid gloves constitute a democracy, and Shillitoe could put more style into a suit than any other tailor in the five towns. "'How do?' the eldest of the Swetnam boys nodded carelessly. "'How do, Swetnam?' said Denry, with equal carelessness. The thing was accomplished. That greeting was like a Masonic initiation, and henceforth he was the peer of no matter whom. At first he had thought that four hundred eyes would be fastened on him, their glance saying, "'This youth is wearing a dress-suit for the first time, and it is not paid for either.' But it was not so. And the reason was that the entire population of the town hall was heartily engaged in pretending that never in its life had it been seen after seven o'clock of a night, apart from a dress-suit. Denry observed with joy that while numerous middle-aged and awkward men wore red or white silk handkerchiefs in their waistcoats, such peoples as Charles Ferns, the Swetnams, and Harold Etches did not. He was then, in the shyness of his handkerchief, on the side of the angels. He passed up the double staircase, decorated with white or pale frocks of unparalleled richness, and so into the grand hall. A scarlet orchestra was on the platform, and many people strolled about the floor in attitudes of expectation. The walls were festooned with flowers. The thrill of being magnificent seized him, and he was drenched in a vast desire to be truly magnificent himself. He dreamt of magnificence, and boot-brushes kept sticking out of this dream like black mud out of snow. In his reverie he looked about for Ruth Earp, but she was invisible. Then he went downstairs again, idly, gorgeously feigning that he spent six evenings a week in ascending and descending monumental staircases appropriately clad. He was determined to be as sublime as anyone. There was a stir in the corridor— and the sublimest consented to be excited. The Countess was announced to be imminent. Everybody was grouped round the main portal, careless of temperatures. Six times was the Countess announced to be imminent, before she actually appeared, expanding from the narrow gloom of her black carriage like a magic vision. Alderman received her, and they did not do it with any excess of gracefulness. They seemed afraid of her, as though she were recovering from influenza, and they feared to catch it. She had precisely the same high voice, and precisely the same efficient smile, as she had employed to Denry. And these instruments worked marvels on Alderman. They were as melting as salt on snow. The Countess disappeared upstairs in a cloud of shrill apologies and trailing Alderman. She seemed to have greeted everybody except Denry. Somehow he was relieved that she had not drawn attention to him. He lingered, hesitating— and then he saw a being in a long yellow overcoat, 
with a bit of peacock's feather at the summit of a shiny high hat. This being held a lady's fur mantle. Their eyes met. Denry had to decide instantly. He decided. "'Hello, Jock,' he said. "'Hello, Denry,' said the other, pleased. "'What's been happening?' Denry inquired, friendly. Then Jock told him about the antics of one of the Countess's horses. He went upstairs again, and met Ruth Earp coming down. She was glorious in white. Except that nothing glittered in her hair, she looked the very equal of the Countess, at a little distance, plain though her features were. "'What about that waltz?' Denry began informally. "'That waltz is nearly over,' said Ruth Earp, with chilliness. "'I suppose you've been staring at her ladyship with all the other men.' "'I'm awfully sorry,' he said. "'I didn't know the waltz was—' "'Well, why didn't you look at your programme?' "'Haven't got one,' he said naively. He had omitted to take a programme. Ninny! Barbarian! "'Better get one,' she said cuttingly, somewhat in her role of dancing mistress. "'Can't we finish the waltz?' he suggested, crestfallen. "'No,' she said and continued her solitary way downwards. She was hurt. He tried to think of something to say that was equal to the situation, and equal to the style of his suit, but he could not. In a moment he heard her below him greeting some male acquaintance in the most effusive way. Yet if Denry had not committed a wicked crime for her, she could never have come to the dance at all. He got a programme and with terror gripping his heart he asked sundry young and middle-aged women whom he knew by sight and by name for a dance. Ruth had taught him how to ask. Not one of them had a dance left. Several looked at him as much as to say, "'You must be a goose to suppose that my programme is not filled up in the twinkling of my eye.' Then he joined a group of despisers of dancing near the main door. Harold Etches was there, the wealthiest manufacturer of his years barely twenty-four, in the five towns. Also Shillitoe, cause of another of Denry's wicked crimes. The group was taciturn, critical, and very doggish. The group observed that the Countess was not dancing. The Earl was dancing, need it be said, with Mrs. Jos Courtney, second wife of the Deputy Mayor. But the Countess stood resolutely smiling, surrounded by aldermen, Possibly she was getting her breath. Possibly nobody had the pluck to ask her. Anyway, she seemed to be stranded there, on a beach of aldermen. Very wisely she had brought with her no members of a house-party from Snade Hall. Members of a house-party at a municipal ball invariably operate as a bar between greatness and democracy, and the Countess desired to participate in the life of the people. "'Why don't some of those Johnnies ask her?' Denry burst out. He had hitherto said nothing in the group, and he felt that he must be a man with the rest of them. "'Well, you go and do it. It's a free country,' said Shillito. "'So I would for two pins,' said Denry. Harold Etches glanced at him, apparently resentful of his presence there. Harold Etches was determined to put the extinguisher on him. "'I'll bet you a fiver you don't.' said Etches, scornfully. "'I'll take you,' said Denry, very quickly, and very quickly walked off. 7. She can't eat me, she can't eat me, 
That was what he said to himself as he crossed the floor. People seemed to make a lane for him, divining his incredible intention. If he had not started at once, if his legs had not started of themselves, he would never have started, and, not being in command of a fiver, he would afterwards have cut a preposterous figure in the group. But started he was, like a piece of clockwork that could not be stopped. In the grand crises of his life, something not himself, something more powerful than himself, jumped up in him and forced him to do things. Now, for the first time, he seemed to understand what had occurred with him in previous crises. In a second, so it appeared, he had reached the Countess. Just behind her was his employer, Mr. Duncalf, whom Denry had not previously noticed there. Denry regretted this, for he had never mentioned to Mr. Duncalf that he was coming to the ball, and he feared Mr. Duncalf. "'Could I have this dance with you?' he demanded bluntly, but smiling and showing his teeth. "'No ceremonial title, no mention of pleasure or of honour, not a trace of the formula in which Ruth Earp had instructed him. He forgot all such trivialities.' "'I've won that fiver, Mr. Harold Etches,' he said to himself. The mouths of Alderman inadvertently opened. Mr. Duncalf blenched. "'It's nearly over, isn't it?' said the Countess, still efficiently smiling. She did not recognise Denry. In that suit he might have been a foreign office attaché. "'Oh, that doesn't matter, I'm sure,' said Denry. She yielded, and he took the paradisical creature in his arms. It was her business that evening to be universally and inclusively polite. She could not have begun with a refusal. A refusal might have dried up all other invitations whatsoever. Besides, she saw that the alderman wanted a lead. Besides, she was young, though a countess, and adored dancing. Thus they waltzed together, while the flower of Bursley's chivalry gazed in enchantment. The countess's fan depending from her arm, dangled against Henry's suit in rather a confusing fashion, which withdrew his attention from his feet. He laid hold of it gingerly between two unemployed fingers. After that he managed fairly well. Once they came perilously near the Earl and his partner, nothing else. And then the dance ended, exactly when Denry had begun to savour the astounding spectacle of himself enclasping the Countess. The Countess had soon perceived that he was the merest boy. "'You waltz quite nicely,' she said, like an aunt, but with more than an aunt's smile. "'Do I?' he beamed. Then something compelled him to say, "'Do you know it's the first time I've ever waltzed in my life, except in a lesson, you know?' "'Really?' she murmured. "'You pick things up easily, I suppose?' "'Yes,' he said. "'Do you?' Either the question or the tone sent the Countess off into carillons of amusement. Everybody could see that Denry had made the Countess laugh tremendously. It was on this note that the waltz finished. She was still laughing when he bowed to her, as taught by Ruth Earp. He could not comprehend why she had laughed, save on the suspicion that he was more humorous than he had suspected. Anyhow, he laughed too, and they parted laughing. He remembered that he had made a marked effect though not one of laughter, on the tailor by quickly returning the question, "'Are you?' And his unpremeditated stroke with the Countess was similar. When he had got ten yards on his way towards Harold Etches and a fiver, 
he felt something in his hand. The Countess's fan was sticking between his fingers. It had unhooked itself from her chain. He furtively pocketed it. 8. Just the same as dancing with any other woman. He told this untruth in reply to a question from Shillitoe. It was the least he could do, and any other young man in his place would have said as much, or as little. "'What was she laughing at?' somebody asked. "'Ah,' said Denry, judiciously, "'wouldn't you like to know?' "'Here you are,' said Etches, with an inattentive, plutocratic gesture, handing over a five-pound note. He was one of those men who never venture out of sight of a bank without a bank-note in their pockets, because you never know what might turn up. Denry accepted the note with a silent nod. In some directions he was gifted with astounding insight, and he could read in the faces of the haughty males surrounding him that in the space of a few minutes he had risen from nonentity into renown. He had become a great man. He did not at once realise how great, how renowned, but he saw enough in those eyes to cause his heart to glow, and to rouse in his brain those ambitious dreams which stirred him upon occasion. He left the group. He had need of motion, and also of that mental privacy which one may enjoy while strolling about on a crowded floor, in the midst of a considerable noise. He noticed that the Countess was now dancing with an alderman, and that the alderman, by an oversight inexcusable in an alderman, was not wearing gloves. It was he, Denry, who had broken the ice, so that the alderman might plunge into the water. He first had danced with the Countess, and had rendered her up to the alderman with delicious gaiety upon her countenance. By instinct he knew Bursley, and he knew that he would be talked of. He knew that, for a time at any rate, he would displace even Jos Curtney, that almost professional card and amuser of Burgesses in the popular imagination. It would not be, Have you heard Jos's latest? It would be, Have you heard about young Machin, Duncalf's clerk? Then he met Ruth Earp, strolling in the opposite direction, with a young girl, one of her pupils, of whom all he knew was that her name was Nellie, and that this was her first ball, a childish little thing with a wistful face. He could not decide whether to look at Ruth or to avoid her glance. She settled the point by smiling at him in a manner that could not be ignored. "'Are you going to make it up for me for that waltz you missed?' said Ruth Earp. She pretended to be vexed and stern, but he knew that she was not. "'Or is your programme full?' she added. "'I should like to,' he said simply. "'But perhaps you don't care to dance with us poor ordinary people, now you've danced with the Countess,' she said, with a certain lofty and bitter pride. He perceived that his tone had lacked eagerness. "'Don't talk like that,' he said, as if hurt. "'Well,' she said, "'you can have the supper-dance.' He took her programme to write on it. "'Why,' he said, "'there's a name down here for the supper-dance. "'Herbert, it looks like.' "'Oh,' she replied carelessly, "'that's nothing. Cross it out.' So he crossed Herbert out. "'Why don't you ask Nellie here for a dance?' said Ruth Earp. And Nellie blushed. He gathered that the possible honour of dancing with the supremely great man— had surpassed Nellie's modest expectations. "'Can I have the next one?' he said. "'Oh, yes,' Nellie timidly whispered. "'It's a polka, and you aren't very good at polking, you know,' Ruth warned him. 
Still, Nellie will pull you through. Nellie laughed in silver. The naive child thought that Ruth was trying to joke at Denry's expense. Her very manifest joy and pride in being seen with the unique Mr. Machin, in being the next after the Countess to dance with him, made another mirror in which Denry could discern the reflection of his vast importance. At the supper, which was worthy of the hospitable traditions of the Chell family, though served standing up in the police court, he learnt all the gossip of the dance from Ruth Earp, among other things that more than one young man had asked the Countess for a dance, and had been refused, though Ruth Earp, for her part, declined to believe that aldermen and councillors had utterly absorbed the Countess's programme. Ruth hinted that the Countess was keeping a second dance open for him, Denry. When she asked him squarely if he meant to request another from the Countess, he said no, positively. He knew when to let well alone, a knowledge which is more precious than a knowledge of geography. The supper was the summit of Denry's triumph. The best people spoke to him without being introduced, and lovely creatures mysteriously and intoxicatingly discovered that programmes which had been crammed two hours before were not, after all, quite full. "'Do tell us what the Countess was laughing at?' This question was shot at him at least thirty times. He always said he would not tell. And one girl, who had danced with Mr. Stanway, who had danced with the Countess, said that Mr. Stanway had said that the Countess would not tell either. Proof here that he was being extensively talked about. Towards the end of the festivity, the rumour floated abroad that the Countess had lost her fan. The rumour reached Denry who maintained a culpable silence. But when all was over, and the Countess was departing, he rushed down after her, and in a dramatic fashion, which demonstrated his genius for the effective, he caught her exactly as she was getting into her carriage. "'I've just picked it up,' he said, pushing through the crowd of worshippers. "'Oh, thank you so much,' she said. And the Earl also thanked Henry, and then the Countess, leaning from the carriage, said— with archness in her efficient smile. "'You do pick things up easily, don't you?' And both Denry and the Countess laughed without restraint, and the pillars of Bursley society were mystified. Denry winked at Jock as the horses poured away, and Jock winked back. The envied of all, Denry walked home, thinking violently. At a stroke he had become possessed of more than he could earn from Duncalf in a month. The faces of the Countess, of Ruther, and of the timid Nellie mingled in exquisite hallucinations before his tired eyes. He was inexpressibly happy. Trouble, however, awaited him. End of chapter 1